Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. On the 22nd of October, 1994, Ken Arthurson stood in the luncheon room of Wembley Stadium. As he awaited the commencement of that afternoon's first test between Great Britain and Australia, he was greeted by ARL board member Graham Lovett. Lovett got straight to the point. Super League is definitely on, Ken. It's going to happen. With that, the rumblings could be ignored no longer, and for the ARL, the denial stage was over. Arthurson returned to Australia shortly after for opening talks with News Limited chairman Ken Cowley. As the war moved from the back rooms to the back pages, News no longer had to hide their intent. It was on. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams here with Andrew Paskin. How's it going, Andy? I'm very well, mates. How are you? Oh, very excited. We're we're here. We can officially utter the word Super League in this episode. After all the build-up, where it's all out in the open, it's and on. It, it's on the the title of this episode. Can we just go back to '94 for a couple more? <laughs> but before we do go any further, I I do want to uh, thank everyone so much for for all uh, all your emails and all the the tweets and everything else for that mailbag episode. I, I had a lot of fun recording that and, and reading all that correspondence. So I think it's something we'll do again uh, periodically. So, so yeah, it keep, was super fun. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was very very interesting exercise. So please keep that all coming in through our socials. So uh, at the League Digest on Twitter, you can find us, the Rugby League Digest on Facebook. And of course, send your emails to the Rugby League Digest at gmail.com. So this chapter of our story does concern the, the machinations leading up to Super League, uh, chiefly looking at the period between October and January, basically, 1994 to 1995. We are taking a slight detour by uh, doing a recap of, of the Kangaroo Tour. I, I can hear the groans coming through the airwaves. But, but everybody remembers when it dropped and it was the Kangaroo Tour. That's when all the Machiavellian intrigue was occurring. Uh, I, I will say, I've got a couple of things to say here. So I, I've learnt uh, as an exercise... When you say you're going to do a Super League podcast and spend the first eight hours of that podcast not talking about Super League, people start to get pissed off. But I don't apologize because, A, I I really do want to insert as much football and give as much of the wider context to the whole saga as I can. Uh, And, B, I've done the research. You might as well listen to it. You said definitive and you're getting definitive. No apology necessary. Yeah, so, so we are going to look at how the Kangaroo Tour played out before going in to the uh, actual revelations of, of what was going on in terms of Super League. So so let's start there. Let's start with the tour, or more broadly, Australian football in general in 1994. 1994 marks the end of a long tradition and the start of uh, something we're still seeing today, where th- for the first time, Australian teams playing at home and uh, in New Zealand or wherever else were referred to as kangaroos, not just the teams going to England every four years. When that occurred, I thought that was the biggest travesty in the history of rugby league. But now 
I think it's probably worked out for the best. I, I think it just makes total sense. Yeah. Like not just the branding, but it was always a little bit arbitrary that you can be good enough to play for Australia here, but you don't get to be called a kangaroo if you don't happen to be, you know, uninjured and in form yeah. for, for this set period every four years. And manage to navigate politics and get selected and yeah. And then somehow make the flight four hours after the grand final. <laughs> so at the time, it did cause a big furor. And I think one of the reasons is that the first time they had this new branding was for the Australia versus France game that, you know, as was the case in those days, Australia just demolished France, uh, leading to some of the old players going, you know, this is Mickey Mouse and <laughs> y- you're calling these guys kangaroos. Was that the 58-0 game? Uh, yeah. I was at that game at Paramount Stadium. Yeah. I went with my cousin and my uncle drove us from uh, up in the north shore of Sydney through criminal traffic, drove back home, come and picked us up through criminal traffic. The hell's the game? I said, oh, 58 now. <laughs> but cheers. Well, well that's, you know, because you were still, you know, like 11 or 12, whatever you would have been at that point. Did you see it as like a non-event or was it still exciting because I Australia think I was like were... 14 or 15. Yeah. But I, was, so... uh, but I thought it was amazing. I thought, oh man, look at him swashbuckling, cutting them to shreds. <laughs> this is amazing. But I, the Australian rugby league team could do no wrong in my eyes. Yeah. I was kind of the same. I think it might have been that game where there was an actual rooster, a live rooster on the sidelines. <laughs> and I remember thinking that was the coolest thing. And so not surprisingly, the decision led to a big outcry among some of the ex-players who, who were aghast that the league would take this step. Uh, there, there were a, a number of good quotes, but I'm, I'm going to give the, the word here to Rex Mossop. Uh, our personal hero, uh, who said, the fact that former kangaroos weren't asked or even informed of the change disgusts me. They could have paid us the courtesy of informing us. Surely that's not too much to ask. I'm trenchantly against the change. And to tell you the truth, I know a lot of former players who are pissed off. <laughs> what about the, the mindset you have to be consulted on every possible change because you formerly played for the kangaroos 30 years ago? It, it goes back to when... Uh, in, in our 87 episode when the ex-players were talking about moving the grand final away from the SCG and Johnny Raper was saying that he spilled a lot of blood <laughs> on, on that turf. And it's like, well, we, we can't base major decisions on the game on, on where you bled. <laughs> like, I shudder to think where we would be if former players had to be consulted on every decision. Yeah. It'd be like, uh, it'd be still unlimited tackles because Danny Messenger skinned his knee on the seventh tackle. <laughs> and another funny thing about the outcry is so much of it seems to come down to the reunions. Oh, so yeah. they'd ha- hold an annual reunion. And I, I think it's something genuinely touching how much the old guys have always loved these reunions. Do you remember, do you remember speaking to Noel Kelly in our Noel Kelly interview and how much he loved it? Yeah, yeah. And, and that's universal. All these books, they'll talk about how it, it's it's like this major slight. If if they decide they're not going to the reunion that year, you know that something <laughs> like really bad's happened. But at the time in 1994, Chimpy Bush was Australia's oldest living kangaroo tour. He said, I never miss a kangaroo reunion. I guess I'll have to hire the SCG now to accommodate everyone because I don't think the New South Wales Leagues Club will be able to fit everyone in. Holy jeez, that's... Uh... And and uh, and Bob McCarthy, coming to a kangaroo reunion was always a right bestowed on a limited few. Take Mick Vivas and Bobby Hagen, for example, truly great players who represented Australia with distinction, yet they can't even attend a kangaroo function because they weren't members of a tour. How do you think they feel now? It's like, well, I think they'd actually feel quite good about it. <laughs> 
it's quite insane making the the domestic tests so you know poultry in comparison yeah because i mean great britain come here every four years and and play three tests so why are you devaluing those three yeah, tests yeah, yeah but in saying all this i love the kangaroo tour more than any man alive well good let's get to it so there there is there or there was Something that really captured the imagination of, of rugby league people, the, the kangaroo tour. And that and that was something that was still the case in 1994, despite the redundancy of a lot of the way the tour was run and the, you know, dominance of the Australian team in that era. First off the bat, I've got a question for you. I mean, once Super League came in and destroyed the, the kangaroo tour, that was like one of the biggest casualties for me. I, I, was, I was crestfallen when that happened, right? Do you think they would have had to die like naturally pretty much after 98? Yeah, there was, there was. They'd already on the cards what they were planning for nineteen ninety eight was was already going to be much different. It, it wasn't going to be the kangaroo tour of old. You might have got a club game or you know a minor representative, a couple of minor representative games, but the kangaroo tour as we knew it was coming to the end of its life cycle anyway. Can you imagine in two thousand and twenty they're playing the Australian Test side is playing an English club side? Yeah. No, uh, and it, it it is something that you look back on fondly, and it's the same with you know the Ashes Cricket Tour playing Worcestershire and and all the rest of it. Yeah, when you read all those old books and all those accounts, it's something that's really cool, but something that has no place in the modern age. So it had reached its use by date anyway. Super League obviously killed it for a number of reasons, but it was already going to be very different from then on i mean it just makes 94 on the field so much more special for me already the best season ever being a raiders man and then for mal and then this this beautiful last kangaroo tour mm. magical time so let, let's go into the tour then I'll, I'll just read out the australian squad uh so you had tim this is in alphabetical order you had tim brasher bradley clyde laurie daly andrew weddinghausen david fairley brad fitler greg florimo david ferner michael hancock paul harrigan Terry Hill, Alan Langer, Glenn Lazarus, Paul McGregor, Mal Meninga, Stephen Menzies, Brett Mullins, Dean Pay, Steve Renoff, Ian Roberts, Wendell Saylor, Jim Sedaris, Paul Sirenan, Jason Smith, Ricky Stewart, Kevin Walters, Steve Walters, and Rod Wishart. What an absolute star-studded lineup! And very, very interestingly, you had 15 Super League players, 13 ARL players. So quite a nice split there. What are you counting Jason Smith as? Oh. <laughs> ARL, mate. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and looking at that squad, we've said in the past when we look at, you know, trying to weigh up our Hall of Fame that the Super League era made it so hard to, you know, judge these careers. But looking at this squad, there's not too many instances of that. You've got players who already made their reputations, players who managed to withstand uh, all, all that disruption and, and cement themselves anyway. So of the former, you, you know, obviously, you know, the Canberra players and, and a few others had already made their Hall of Fame case. You have like Steve Mendes and others kind of going on with it afterwards. There's very few that you, you're weighing it up because of the Super League thing. I, I look at, you know, maybe David Ferner, David Fairley in the same kind of boat. There's a few there, but not not too many that are affected by that. No, you're right. Such a well-balanced squad too. Beautiful. Uh, and looking at, some of the omissions, it's... I don't think there was anyone that was... We, we've talked about, you know, Croker missing out and things like that. There were, there were definitely a fair few claims for selection. You know, so some of the names that were thrown up in the papers at the time, the likes of, you know, Brad Mackay, Ben Elias, Mark Carroll, Willie Kahn, who it's surprising to think that, that Willie Kahn missed out. So I think you're right when we talked about that a few weeks ago that he'd kind of come to the end of his run. It's funny because 93, you were still on the top of the box. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we talked about uh, in our grand final recap that Ken Nagus 
must have been close to being a bolter. And in fact, he, he, he very much was. And basically, it was the goal kicking that got Rod Wishart on the plane over him with no recognised kicker in you know the, the main squad or no kicker who was the goal kicker at his club. And he wasn't even that good a kicker. Yeah, <laughs> that's the funny thing. There was one article talking about that fact and, and they said, you know, Rod Wishart, he's really worked hard on his kicking and has got himself up over 70%. <laughs> but he was a very good winger. Yeah. I was a big Rob Wishart fan. Mm. But the only guy there that probably can consider himself mildly lucky is Jim Sedaris. At the time, he was very good, but... He he was definitely... Because in every tour, there's a handful of players that are picked as the next in line. Mm. And you know they're going to be emus, and it's just there for the experience. You look at Freddie in 1990, not saying that anyone thought Jim Sedaris was in Brad Fittler's class. Yeah. But it's 1990, Freddie was the next guy. You know, there's always a couple of those... On each tour. And in 1994, yeah, you would have thought that Jim Sedaris was that guy. There's not too many arguments with that squad. Mm. Mark Carroll, quite unlucky, but yeah, you know, a lot of good guys in front of him. Uh, Terry Hill, very, very lucky to get on the plane after a, an assault charge <laughs> leveled at him outside the Wallara Hotel. Uh, and it took a lot of uh, greasing of wheels by one K Arthurson to, to make sure he didn't lose his spot. He's one of the luckiest blokes to have Arco on his side. Yeah. Imagine if he was at West or something. Um, well, well, that's the thing. So, Bozo and Arco, for that matter. Yeah. So, Ken Arthurson said of it, There was a rising clamour of opinion that Hill should not be allowed to tour with the Kangaroos. I will frankly admit that his demeanour, his attitude, his obviously heartfelt regret touched me a great deal. I paused and considered, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to let you go with the team, but I want an assurance from you that what happened in this business will never happen again. <laughs> and it never did. <laughs> um, but uh, obviously it's another example of the manly favoritism, whether real or perceived, that didn't do Arthurson's legacy any favours. And just like reasserting all the stories you hear about Arthurson basically promising potential manly signings <laughs> a kangaroo jersey if they signed up. Terrible. I bet it's saying that uh, very good player deserved his spot on, on playing ability. Yeah, and when they when they talked about other players who potentially would have got in over him, you're talking about Chris Johns, who who, you know, great player coming to the end of his run. Mark Coyne, we we talked about it, very good player, but you know, not a, you know, legend of the game. So it's it's not like there was anyone like, you know, pushing the door down to get in ahead of him. Yeah, uh, no one's arguing about his selection. Mm. Uh, anything else you want to say about the squad? No, just that I loved it. Uh, and I, I know you were really invested in this tour. So what are some of your memories or what was your mindset at the time? Well, as you know, I, I taped every game on VHS. We'll put the photo up on, on the socials. But I started loving English Rugby League early 90s when the Challenge Cups were on late at night. That's the only time we got to see it in those days. And the Wembley and like the, the atmosphere and the, the jerseys and how open it was. Yeah. It looked like it was on a, a field twice as wide because mm -hmm. there was so much space, right? Yeah. I didn't realize at the time it was because of like, you know, poor intensity in defense. But, <laughs> uh, and then the 92 Great Britain Lions tour here, I, I was in love with Gary Schofield, all these cool players, Kelvin Skerritt, Lee Crooks, always like mm. hard men, you know, blokes like Andy Gregory and stuff like that, like real English faces. I mean, is there an Eng more English face than Gary Schofield? <laughs> no, there never has Quintessential. been. Quintessential. Yeah. Him and Nigel Mansell. Too. <laughs> so I, I just love the class of Schofield and like, how good is this guy, you know? Uh, so I got into it then. So I started buying Open Rugby, the magazine. 
and it's now called Rugby League World. Uh, so I'm, I'm I'm right up on the English game. I'm reading about all these players and stuff, not watching any. So I'm just so pumped up for this tour. Stayed up for all the tests, taped every game, watched every game twice. You know, watched the third test like 20 times. I was watching that right, right into the 95 season. Yeah. <laughs> I just thought it was so cool that they're playing like Cumbria and they're playing, they played the under 21 Great Britain side for God's sakes. Think about that. Yeah. Imagine what the score would be this, this mm. day and age. So I, I looked into it. The last, the last obviously, the, you had the Invincibles in 80, 82 and also unbeaten in 86. So 78 was the last tour where an Australian team lost to a British club side. They, they actually lost to Whitney's and Warrington in 78. How is that possible? Just on the drink? Yeah. I, I mean, clearly, like, the, you know, there's games you take less seriously than others, but... Still. <laughs> yeah, it, it's... It, it doesn't really make a lot of sense now looking back. But it was the last old school tour in a number of ways. And, and I, I like some of the quaintness reading the stories about it, like the supporters tour. I used to dream of growing up and going on a supporters tour. It's, I was exactly the same, you know, for, for cricket and footy. You'd, you'd like see the ads in, in the magazines and you'd, like, you'd read the stories and see that, you know. like I'd be know. like, Bob McCarthy, you can hang out with him? <laughs> and, 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 like being around comedy now and knowing like corporate gigs and how much he would be hating it. Yeah. People <laughs> ear bashing him about 68 and stuff like that. Like, um, so in, in the Rugby League week, they ran their own supporters tour and they gave an account like they, you know, got the word from the fans about their experiences along the way and there was something really touching about it. So you had the Dean the Dean family who uh, were actually based in Darwin and they saved up. This was like the literal trip of a lifetime to to go on this tour. And at the end of it, there was like a, you know, a lunch where the, the whole Australian team came to, you know, have lunch with the supporters tour. And Leslie Dean said that, it was the highlight of my life. If I died tomorrow, I'd feel thoroughly satisfied. And it's like that. It's beautiful. It's so beautiful. Um, I, I don't think Laurie Daly's sister would share the same sentiment. So Laurie Daly's sister was based in Darwin. So Leslie said, another bonus for the Deans was that Daly gave them the name and address of his sister, who also lives in Darwin. They intend looking her up the minute they get back to Australia. <laughs> <laughs> that's going to be more more of an intrusion than the McRae household. <laughs> well, speaking of the McRae household, w- one of the other things I wanted to talk about uh, was I, I got the um, Ricky Stewart's Kangaroo Tour book uh, as part of my research. And in keeping with the great tradition of tour books by Australian sportsmen, found it absolutely worthless garbage. <laughs> There was a competition from like 1990 to 2000 for I believe books on how many words you could put into a book with saying absolutely nothing. <laughs> but the funny thing is, I ate these books up when I was a kid. <laughs> like you'd read, you know, some Merv Hughes book where he recycled like a, a fake story that was in an Ian <laughs> Chapel book from the 70s, and I was just like, "This is so cool." <laughs> but uh, listener Steve Ford, who who sent us an email during the week, he uh. He actually mentioned that Ricky Stewart book in his email and uh, actually um, said an anecdote that I, I um, must have skipped over. But Sean McRae actually had a bit of a side hustle on the tour, uh, selling kangaroo tour uh, gear to some of the locals, which, you know, like, I, I guess uh, he had to pay for a, you know, private phone line. <laughs> Due to some harassment from the Hunter region. Can you imagine what went on? 30 footballers and staff together on the drink every night. Yeah. Just women mayhem. 
So you did see the emergence of some players on this tour. One of the unlikely ones was Greg Florimo, who uh, obviously an established first grader, but went on the tour, basically gave himself no chance of playing in the tests. In in his account, uh, which was published in Rugby League Week, he said, From day one, I didn't hold high hopes of playing test football. I consider myself as a third 5'8", and a test spot looked beyond me. Laurie Daly is one of a few certainties for every test, and even if he'd been injured, Brad Fittler and Kevy Walters were above me in the pecking order. And going into the tour, that's exactly how you would have thought it played out. This is when I fell in love with Florimo as a player. Made himself a utility, invaluable just through effort. Yeah, so gets on the bench for, for game through two, plays a really valuable role, uh, holds his spot for game three. Um, one of the stories in, in game two that I love from Florimo was that Steve Walters got Simbin in that second test. So Sean McRae ran onto the field to tell Dean Pay that he'd be playing hooker for you know the 10 minutes that Walters was out. And Dean Pay said that he didn't want it to be hooker. So Greg, Greg Florimo just said, I'll, I'll do it, I'll, I'll play hooker, you know. In the end, you know, they said, no, Dean Pay's going to play hooker. But it, it's just a lesson in how far a good attitude can get you. Yeah, yeah. Like, obviously, Greg Florimo was a class player. But, you know, by his own admission, well down the pecking order, just by being eager, just by being ready to plug any hole asked and to fill that role. Definition of an eager beaver. Yeah. I've uh, lived my life as an inverse flow and, <laughs> and had the success to match. Just just a little minor rugby league digest investigation, read Greg Florimo. I just want to read this out. Daisy and I were genuinely pleased for each other and it was good to be able to share the moment. Kicking back in our room together, it was one of the rare times that I was able to forget what a slob he is to live with. Uh, this is talking about David Daisy Fairley, of course. That was one day I didn't even chip him for leaving the toilet seat up again. does greg florimo piss sitting down (laughs) i don't know (laughs) for someone that high i don't think so yeah (laughs) it was weird he had a number of other players making their names on that tour dean pay another obvious example uh david Ferner, to some extent the same story dean pay was a coming of age tour yeah uh on on the other side of the ball you had paul sirenan drop from the run-on squad after the first test and that tour would be the end of his representative career. Three kangaroo tours, you know, 14 tests for New South Wales, obviously a, a great career. But Legend of the game. Yeah. Uh, this stood out to me when he was talking about being dropped. I felt like I was seen as only a ball runner on tour. Once you fall into that category, it's hard to get out of it because players around you don't worry about supporting when you have the ball. Bit, bit more evidence of uh, Ciro <laughs> being willing to throw his teammates under buses. <laughs> He should be in, a, in, in the bus repair business. He spends a lot of time <laughs> looking under it. And then the, the big story about selections on tour was the never-ending saga of Stuart versus Langer. For the second tour in a row, Langer started the tour with the spot and uh, Bombed. ended up... <laughs> Elaborate, please. Well, this time he was starting halfback and Sticky was on the bench. 1990, it was a ill-fated Sticky at 5-8 Langer at half experiment. Both lost the first tests inexplicably, hence my rugby league week letter. <laughs> but do you think it's fair to say that Langer bombed? Well, I mean, they didn't win. They didn't win, yeah. So when you are in a position where you're expected to win and you don't, fair enough, you've got to wear it. Uh, one perceptive thing from a Sherlock column who said, thought for today, the current Australian team will always be a better side when Ricky Stewart is at half rather than Alfie Langer. That's no reflection on Langer. It's just that Stewart's greater field vision and ability to create space with his wide passes is always more likely to get the backline machine clicking into gear. Well, I said that six months earlier in my letter, and no, no credit. 
I wonder if at this point Stewart was the more malleable player, the player that you could stick into more situations and have success. Well, I think a lot comes down to that Laurie Daly was at six as well. Mm. So that combination cannot be overstated how yeah. tight that was. But I mean, Langer was an individual player. He was a he was a jinker. Mm. He was a uh, he was a line breaker, sticky with an organizer, yeah, and a kicker. Mm. And and obviously the the results speak for themselves in the end. I just wanted to look at the the England squad before we get to the actual tests. Some great names in that. Uh, so a great era for. For English football, uh, this was the start of, or you know, fairly short reign of, of Ellery Hanley as Great Britain coach. So he wasn't playing for Great Britain, even though he was still an active player with Leeds at the time. Really odd that. Well, he's their equivalent to Wally. Yeah. So you know, in the days when Wally was captain coach and yeah. that's type, that type of thing. So he took over the job when Mal really announced that he was going to be leaving to coach Newcastle, putting them in a bind. Really, like the the timing of it, and you know, no doubt through their dis- you know preparations into disruption. Finally, you mentioned Wally because Morris Lindsay actually said that he saw Ellery Hanley as like a British version of Bob Fulton. Yeah, uh, right. and this was going to be the start of a similar run as a coach. Similar players. Yeah, yeah. Style-wise. Uh, Ellery Hanley's elevation to coach basically meant the end of Gary Schofield's test career. So they were... Maybe an English listener can fill us in on the nature of the, you know... I don't want to call it a feud, but the, the disagreements or the uh, tension between them at the time. It feels like a bit of the Ray Price, Wally Lewis's. Except they seem to have mended bridges. So, th- you know, they were both in, in town a, a couple of years ago for uh, to be inducted into the West Tigers Hall of Fame. There was a great story with them both at a cafe in Concord, you know, reliving old times. I just think, I think they're both gentlemen, that's why. Mm. I mean, Gary Scofield will be, you know, advising people that he's not having that regularly, but <laughs> he's a stand-up guy. Yeah. So they seem to have patched whatever was between them now. And maybe it was just... Schofield was coming to the end of his time as a top-line player, left left out of the squad entirely for the first game and you know made his way back in and played a key role for the second two tests. But those were, in fact, his last tests for Great Britain. Yeah, sad. But one because th- we are both massive Gary Schofield fans, and and one thing that really you know emphasised that for me was was reading this. Perhaps the most poignant side at Wembley was that of Gary Schofield, immaculate in the sort of gear you wear in the t- TV studio rather than on the paddock, working his way around the winning dressing room, shaking hands with his Great Britain mates, swallowing his bitter disappointment and not being directly involved. Schofield was the perfect diplomat, however much it hurt. Great team, man. Mm. I like the idea of him being like dressed to the nines. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Goes back to those Challenge Cup things like wearing the white roses and the, the <laughs> yeah, red yeah. roses. It was a bit of a new brigade of English football as well with, you know, the likes of Schofield bowing out and some of the players coming through. England's captain at the time, Sean Edwards. I didn't realise this, but uh, was was going out with the lead singer of the M people. I couldn't believe this myself. I had to look it up and find out that they had a long-term relationship and they have a child. Yeah. Now, I love Sean Edwards, right? But had the smalls from M people moving on up fame was a stone fox. Mm. Sean Edwards head like a robber's dog at best. <laughs> All due respect, Sean would probably admit that himself back in the day. But, uh, mate, playing above his weight and punching above it. <laughs> uh, so we'll move on to the test themselves. So Sean Edwards playing above his weight for a, a shortened period in, in that first test. <laughs> I, mean, I, I remember the exact moment that happened. And I just thought, this is how English is this? They're going to get beat by 40. Mm. And then they somehow pull it up. So he played a man down and, and won the game 8-4. A, a lot of the, you know, they didn't 
offer any excuses. They said that England were just the better team on the day. But uh, a lot of the aftermath of the Australian talk was that in taking out Clyde, they took the one guy that Australia couldn't do without. And it was really hard for Australia to overcome that. A great little history footnote that Adrian Morley reprised the idiocy uh, 10 years later. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And Ellery Hanley went on to say that it beats any achievement I've ever been involved in before. To beat Australia with 12 men, Christ, the determination, the guts, they showed every bit of character. Yeah, really good. Obviously, at the time, I was going for the Kangaroos, but in hindsight, it would have been good if Great Britain won 1990 or 94. Yeah. Might have saved the international yeah. game. Mm. Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I've, I've thought the same thing as well in the past. Uh, probably it, it's a bit too too neat to say that that would have had any you know great effect, but you could see the effect it had in the short term with London tabloids actually putting the English victory on the back pages Yeah, um, that weekend. And this was coming off the back of the Australian team actually being the the target of you know the the typical kind of gutter press tabloid abuse with they were trying they were you know sending like women in and trying to get a story out of it and like you know you know camping out outside the the hotel rooms like our biggest problem in Australian media was like you know, Phil Rothfield sending a wooden spoon to Brian Waldron like Fleet Street the worst human beings on the planet um, just while we were talking about hotel rooms I realized I meant meant to talk about this early when we were talking about the the last of the old school tours and and the changing of of the way things were done uh, and this came down to the hotels which it had happened before this tour but it you know they started putting the teams up in like better and better hotels and I love the way they talk about it. like this was viewed as like some radical change <laughs> not having their team like stay in absolute dumps <laughs> <laughs> but I reckon the old blokes be complaining too. It's like they've lost the first test. Yeah. It's the four stars, uh, and they took the job of booking the hotel so seriously that Australian management actually recruited Bob Linder, who was playing for Oldham, to do a bit of scouting on available hotels and <laughs> give his report. Nice for Bob. We aren't going to select you, but if you can, you can just sort out the accommodation. Uh, so a famous victory for Great Britain, but. Ultimately futile with Australia winning the second and third tests pretty easily. All round, this is my all-time favourite Kangaroos squad, right? Mullins, E.T., Mal, Ranoff, Wishart, Daly, Stewart, Lazarus, Walters, Steve, at the peak of his powers, Ian Roberts, tour of his life, Dean Pay, Brad Clyde, Brad Fittler. Mm. On the bench, Brashart, Langer, Flo and Ciro. I mean, yeah. how could they possibly beat that in a three-game yeah. series? yeah. And, and I mean that 90, 1990 squad was was up there as well. So it, I mean, it, it says something about the quality of that Great Britain team. That I mean, they won in Australia as well. Like how close they got at various points. It was just the that didn't quite have the class to match. Yeah, that was it. You don't blame Morris Lindsay for in the aftermath of the third test pondering their future and saying, as it is at the moment, we haven't got a prayer. It's possible that in the lifetime of every British fan, we'll never beat Australia. I think that's pretty poor leadership. <laughs> I mean, they were one test off. You know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so in, any closing closing thoughts on that kangaroo tour? Just magnificent memories. I've got the, I've got the 94 kangaroo tour book, the, the official text of it. Treasured book of mine. Love it. And um, yeah, Sam Mal out of the ultimate retirement. It's hard to get up for it for Mel, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, um, it, it's funny you say that because this was this was Mel Meninga after the third test. More than anything, I felt huge relief when we won the final test to secure the Ashes. There was also a bit of an empty feeling. 
I didn't know what to do with myself. Through the whole podcast since the day we started, is he had one quote that's not <laughs> ab- abominable? <laughs> Greatest player of all time. Keep your mouth shut. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, so I, I echo those sentiments about the, the tour and my memories of it. Uh, I wasn't following as closely as you, but it certainly like stands out in the mind now. All I think of is that Ellen Road third test with uh, Steve Walters is playing out of his skin. Yeah. Total peak of his powers. And mm. then the flick pass from Sticky to Dean Pay, which I inserted into my touch footy repertoire, uh, much to the chagrin of my uh, teammates. <laughs> Mate, no flick passes. <laughs> so so great times that would be interrupted by, you know, the, the worst time in rugby league history that we'll get to. But it's it started before that kangaroo tour. Obviously, we talked about the the building of the rumor mill and and the various whispers that were coming out throughout the 1994 season about behind the scenes plotting that would eventually become Super League. This was this was really telling. So on Grand Final Day 1994, one of the the times where it really came into the open in terms of the ARL powers that be. So this was from Roy Masters' book Inside Out, talking about John Singleton being in the box with Kerry Packer. A minute or so before kickoff, Singleton whispered to Packer, it's on, and explained that Murdoch's Super League train had left the siding. Immediately after the game, Packer instructed his son James to get those two blokes to the box. Packer Senior was referring to Arthurson and Quayle. There's something so telling and, and so illustrative about those words, get those two blokes in the box. Yeah. Uh, and it really shows you the... It, it shouldn't be a surprise as to, you know, where the bread was buttered and, and where the, the true power of rugby league lay. But when you see that, you can kind of understand a bit more the way that Arthurson was so uh, so willing to praise Winfield and, and so kind of in the pocket of his major sponsors and the, the money men involved in the game. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously by this point, grand final day, the ARL could ignore the threat no longer and it was clear that something was happening this was also about the same time that the the sponsorship the ARL had been negotiating some news was falling apart and you're getting two sides of the story here as well so from the news side Ken Cowley who we're going to introduce a bit more in detail shortly said that at the end of it they were handed a one-page proposal about what the ARL wanted to do uh, and that put news off and made them think that these guys weren't serious (laughs) <laughs> Which I, 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 I don't believe that from what the ARLs are saying, like Ken Arthurson said that we'd opened our records and financial statements to News Limited and we'd opened our hearts, telling them what our plans were, our hopes for the game. They were privy to just about everything it was possible to know about rugby league in 1994. And that's the unforgivable thing. While they were talking to us, they were also in quiet negotiation in the background with the Broncos about the possibility of a Super League. Open our hearts. Yeah, which, why would you? Probably not the best way to do business. Yeah. Uh, just uh, open the books. Yeah, yeah, just exactly. Open the books. Forget about the hearts. But uh, you, you can see both sides of it there. Like, I, I don't believe that the ARL really would have given them a one-page proposal. I think that's a bit of spin. Yeah. But I also think it's spin from the other side because why would you open your hearts to any corporate partner. <laughs> <laughs> but what's hilarious to me is that Ken Cowley, the name we heard daily when this war broke out, impacted so many fans' lives. Never hear of him again. Yeah. Just a faceless executive. Yeah, well, let, let's do it now then. Let's introduce Ken Cowley. So he was the boss of News Limited in Australia for 27 years or so. Uh, w- remained on the board for a number of years after that, but actually left to be boss of RM Williams. 
and that was kind of his retirement job. I think he was still involved with him as of a couple of years ago. I mean, how do you go from like destroying rugby league to boots? <laughs> it's crazy. And the funny thing about Ken Cowley was that he retained that old world kind of countenance. And so he had the the claims of being a real Australian kind of guy, which is, I guess, what news needed when their figurehead was Rupert Murdoch, who basically renounced uh, his own Australian tyres. Yeah, I mean, by all accounts, he was a genius operator. And I, I don't mean a smooth operator like a rugby league mm. uh, dunce. I mean, like a, <laughs> a genius uh, business executive. Yeah, and for all the that from the start, it was always billed as, you know, Ru- Rupert Murdoch taking rugby league. It's remarkable how late in the game he actually became involved in Super League. As far as Rupert Murdoch's thinking, he's doubling down in the US, China, everywhere else in the world, UK, and he's just like, well, make sure pay TV makes money in Australia. Yeah. That's all he's, that's all he's thinking. Yeah, yeah. And and there there you, you've you've hit the nail on the head. Uh, we said at the start we're going to go a bit deeper than it's just about pay TV. <laughs> but this is where news really come into it. So Rupert Murdoch had already started to build his, you know, worldwide sports kind of thing in the US and the UK. You're having the looming approach of pay TV in Australia with news having an interest in that. And it was clear, it was always clear that you couldn't make that work without sport. So whatever happened, you needed to have a top line sport to make it succeed. NBL was there for the taking. (laughs) And this is where Ken Cowley became involved. And so for all the, the lead up talk we've done about the growing relationship between news and the Broncos and, you know, the the kind of ways they, they gelled and saw mutual benefit. This is what it all comes down to. It's all about pay TV, mate. But still knowing this, no one really in 1994 thought that a breakaway competition would happen. You, you had uh, Braham Dabshek, who uh, I'll, I'll use this moment to once again tell everyone about the Tom Brock lecture. On the 24th of September, you can get your tickets for free at tombrock.com.au. Uh, come along, we'll be there. Uh, it's great rugby league night. Braham Dabshek, who's a sports historian and, and a long history of being involved in academics about industrial relations, will be talking about uh, the rise of the Rugby League Players Association. In 1994, he was interviewed about the prospect of a breakaway comp and said that history would show that it probably won't happen. It will involve some sort of compromise. And uh, the quote was, the general result is that the established body will either beat the rebel group off or the rebel group will be absorbed into the system and they'll get some benefits from their actions. That is a perfectly reasonable uh, attitude to have at the time because rugby league has been built on grandiose threats and 11th hour saviors from day dot. Yeah. We just thought there's another one of those. It'll get resolved. Um, We'll all move on. Yeah. Bring on 95. (laughs) (laughs) And this was the start of what you were hearing. Even when it was clear that Super League was more than a rumor and there was something happening, everyone like at all levels, even from the news side, was saying the ARL would be in control. And people who were pro Super League were saying, I think it's a really good concept as long as the ARL are the ones running it. Yeah. So it's funny how that changed from the beginning to the, yeah, to the midway. Yeah. Everyone was for it as long as the ARL was running the, the, the Super League. Mm. And that's that's the kind of running theme of our next two episodes. But this was the time where News Limited really got proactive about approaching the other clubs and getting the word out. So uh, they were going to interested clubs with a proposal and they were very smart about the way they framed it with a bit of fear mongering that was probably history will show was not based without fact. So you had uh, Star City Casino just about to open. 
So there was real worry that poker machine revenue at the league's clubs was going to decline. And this formed a key part of what news was saying to the clubs. Never mind. We, we, we still managed to, to rip off the society for, uh, for ever and a day after that. It's fine. <laughs> at this stage, in, late in 1994, Brisbane and Canberra were the only teams that would actually admit to having been involved in talks or being made aware of what was going on. But everyone knew that Canterbury had also been involved. Peter Moore denied having seen any documentation or having any contact with News Limited, but all the word was that he was a prime mover with, you know, all the talks going on. Chris Anderson actually, you know, broke that somewhat and, and said that Canterbury were privy to what was going on, <laughs> but has, haven't actually been involved in any talks of a breakaway group. Uh, and I, I love this, this from Anderson. Anderson said he did not condone disloyalty to the league in any way, shape or form, but he said economics would govern their alliance. <laughs> it's just, it's funny to me how unlucky some clubs were and how lucky they were. Just because Bullfrog had a bit of political power, Canterbury gets tapped on the shoulder. Yeah. Whereas some of the other clubs in that were just as suburban and with just as awful grounds, you yeah. know, didn't get a tap on the shoulder. Yeah. So Canterbury obviously put themselves in the driver's seat from very early on in the piece. But they did that. Obviously, there were the connections, but there was also the ability to read the writing on the wall, which other clubs weren't doing or weren't willing to do. Mm. Canterbury could at least see that there was a real threat and they needed to take action if they were going to have a chance of surviving or surviving as a standalone entity. So the proposal that came out in 1994 was somewhat close to what we got in 1995. So talking about a 12-team competition uh, and with a maximum of four Sydney clubs. And again, a, a bit more of these scare tactics saying that without the backing of News Limited, the ARL faced a bleak future with the you know, Winfield Money leaving the game, Star City coming on board and trying to compete for the same sponsorship dollar with a dwindling number of companies who could offer that that top tier sponsorship. Looking back now, it's laughable that you couldn't get a sponsorship from phone companies, mm. uh, laundry detergents, anything. Yeah. <laughs> Coca-Cola. Yeah. But like all you heard was that any money that was being offered wasn't cigarette money. And you got to, like, it makes you think, like, I, I guess the cigarette companies, it was their last bastion. It was the last place that they could advertise. So they were therefore paying overs. It was almost like they prefer to have children killing products as opposed to something else. <laughs> so just have something else. Don't worry about it. So, of course, it was the Kangaroo Tour where this proposal made its way to the ARL and Ken Arthurson had to deal with the problem face on. So early in the tour, you're still seeing a bit of that denial from the league. With this quote from Ken Arthurson from England, Morris Lindsay knows nothing about it. He certainly hasn't been contacted by anyone representing them. The top British players will be the targets of any breakaway group, but Arthurson suggested neither the Australian or British leagues had too much to fear. So that was after the first test. It was after the second test that he got word that it was on and he had to get back to Australia. Talk about bad timing. And while this innuendo was playing out, there was a lot of it on tour. So Bob Fulton and everyone involved said that, like, we just had our minds on the game and, you know, there were rumblings, but, you know, we just wanted to win. And I'm sure there was a lot of truth of that, but I'm also sure that there was a lot of talk among that squad about what was happening. I mean, we know Bozo as rugby league fans and there's nothing going on the game that he wouldn't know about. Yeah. And that's what I always, like... This is skipping ahead a bit, but you always see like when Bozo's being interviewed about Super League, he, he says, the first I knew about it was when I woke up on the 1st of April, 1995. Oh, yeah, right. it's, 
what are you talking about? <laughs> like, and I, I know maybe like he's talking about that iteration of Super League, but even then, no, no one's buying that. What, what are you gaining from saying that? Now, let me ask you this. Now, this was 90, 94, 95 when one day cricket was huge before it died. Yeah. Huge. Well, that might have even been the, the summer of the Australia A, right? Yeah, I think it was 94. 94, sorry. But now, wouldn't you learn from history that Kerry Packer did the exact same thing <laughs> that they're doing now and then it got up and then yeah. it superseded the, the tests mm. unbelievably, but it did for yeah. the time. It didn't tend to occur to them that it was, it was a real chance. can't believe it. Well, I mean, they saw it happen. Yeah, very nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is odd. And over the course of the tour, it, the, the rumblings got louder. One um, story that that stood out in my mind was this from Bill Harrigan's book. I was in the UK to referee the third test and was with a group of journalists playing pool when the Daily Telegraph's Peter Falingos asked if I knew any details of the proposed competition. I didn't, but I was all ears as he and the other reporters spoke about a World Series cricket scenario happening in rugby league. But it seems at that stage, even the news journalists didn't really know what was happening. Amazing the leaks didn't get out. Mm. So this, this was Arthurson talking about when he found out on that kangaroo tour. Graham Lovett said to me, you know, Super League's definitely going to be on. It's on for sure. David Smith, the Super League technician, is over here now looking at the English League, assessing the financial viability of the English clubs and how they're going, and all that sort of stuff. I think you should be looking at it. So I said, geez, I've got to get back and make arrangements to see Ken Cowley and get this thing thrashed out. Took that to tell him? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the fact that he knew Ken Cowley was involved and like knew something was going on, it, it's weird that he was like... It must just be denial, mm. really. So he left before the third test to go and, and have a meeting with Ken Cowley. And it's on, on the it's equal parts endearing and infuriating that Arthurson speaks about how sad he was to have to leave leave the tour and miss the decider. <laughs> it's like I know you love rugby league, but watch it on TV; it'll be fine. Like, Bigger fish to fry at the moment. <laughs> but before he got on the plane, he actually rang John Quayle and said what was happening, and said, "Let's get a meeting of all the clubs set up for when I get back." And from there, you know, the the plan commenced. He basically met Quayle at the airport, and they went back to Phillips Street and, and thrashed it all out before he even went home. The most astonishing thing about that tale is that the Super League technician went over and assessed the financial viability of the English clubs and come back with a thumbs up. <laughs> <laughs> Average crowds of 3,000, um, no sponsorship, all good. Uh, and to his credit, Ken Cowley actually offered to pay for Arthurson's trip home, but Arthurson declined. But uh, that that kind of characterises the, the nature of uh, negotiations between the two of them over the next few months, where I think they were both coming from a similar old school kind of mentality. Imagine how tense and awkward that meeting would have been. Mm. So as I said, Arthurson and Quayle got together before the meeting with Cowley just to get their side of things worked out. And that was where the, the loyalty contracts, which would come to be a, a key part of the dispute, came into being. There's a few theory, a, a few competing uh, origin stories for those loyalty contracts. We'll save that for the, for our next episode. Uh, but from early on in the piece, the ARL was working on their counterattack. But then in November 1994, Arthurson did meet with Cowley uh, for the first serious talk about the potential for the the two groups to come together. And at this stage, Cowley was pushing the the concept to Arthurson as something that would be run by, by the ARL. So in Arthurson's words, Cowley said, we'd like the ARL to be a part of it, yourself in particular. 
We'd like you to lead the show. I said, well, we've got to find out what the proposition is. We had one or two talks after that, and he said we'd have a full proposition to us by February. So what's Arco thinking here? Is he thinking, yeah, it's all in hand. We'll find out what it is. We'll give him something and then smooth it over. And we'll carry on. I don't think I don't think he was that naive. I think by this stage there was a, a genuine realization that this was serious. But I, I think at that point he still thought that something could be achieved with the ARL running the show. Right. So I wouldn't say he was enthusiastic about it or thought that it, it was you know something that would would happen. I would have thought a guy like him is as sharp as he was, right? And Quail, they would think, you know what? This is a way for us to get rid of some dead wood here and not look like we're the villains. Where we had to do this to save the comp. Sorry, Wes. Sorry, Norths. Sorry, whoever else. Yeah. I, I, I thought it would have been a great opportunistic uh, way to handle it. Yeah, and I, I don't think either of them were on that page, which you could argue was a definite flaw in, in their leadership or, or vision at the time. In their defense or pushing against that slightly is the fact that they couldn't really act without Kerry Packer because of the way they'd set up their their broadcast deal. Mm. So closing out his meeting with Cowley, Ken Arthurson said, well, you better speak to Kerry Packer and see what he thinks. And that was how Ken Arthurson ended that meeting with Ken Cowley by telling him that before anything else happened, he'd need to speak to Kerry Packer. So Ken Cowley duly did that, set up a meeting with Kerry, uh, and it was a meeting for the ages. So I'll, I'll read it in Ken Cowley's words. This was the account as Roy Masters tells it in his book Inside Out. It was a sunny, balmy afternoon and they settled into the ample leather chairs in Packer's office. Although the atmosphere was relaxed and friendly, they were surrounded by colour prints of marauding lions. The quick rapport lulled Kerry Packer into an opening banter of humorous exchanges about politics and business, but the subject quickly moved to Cowley's earlier meeting with Arthurson over Super League. Packer began scowling at Cowley as the News Limited boss proceeded to explain, in his measured way, that Arthurson had been informed of the inevitability of Super League. Uh, then it goes on for a while until Packer launched himself from his chair like a bull elephant. He thundered around the office, threatening Cowley with legal writs and commercial combat of the like Cowley had never seen. I will paper the walls of your office with writs, Packer promised. <laughs> Life has become boring. This is the fight I've been needing for some time. The laws have changed since the rebel cricket days. Believe me, you won't have a chance in hell. <laughs> wow. Intimidating fellow. Yeah, and, and I like getting in there. The, the laws have changed since the rebel cricket days, i.e. the laws have changed since I'm on this side of it this time. <laughs> it's worth noting for the for the listener that maybe he's a bit younger that Channel 9 was so powerful back then. If you want a good read, uh, Gerald Stone's compulsive viewing about the, the Nine Network under Packer's reign. Mm. Insanely good book, right? Yeah. But, I mean, looking at Channel 9 now or any commercial station in Australia, it's a joke. Back then, they controlled things. Yeah. The news. It's hardcore. Yeah. Cowley's quotes about the meeting are, are always quite coy. He won't go into the specifics. So one quote was, we had a quick meeting. It lasts about 45 seconds. And the other one was, I went down there and I saw Kerry. It was rather powerful. It would make pretty good television, actually. <laughs> but so what Cowley was putting to Packer was that Packer could keep the free-to-air rights, uh, but News wanted the overseas rights and the pay TV rights. So that was what he was offering and what he was willing to concede on. Uh, and Packer wasn't having it, as Gary Schofield would say. <laughs> 
what was worse, the ARL competition or Optus Vision Pay TV? <laughs> <laughs> and so to end this chapter of the story, we go to what the ARL did next, knowing that basically they had a timeline of November to February where they'd agreed that a proposal could be given to the ARL by News Limited. In the meantime, they thought that they had to shore up their own defence and what they came up with was the commitment agreements that they sent out to all the clubs, thinking that they could guarantee the the clubs would be loyal to them that way. Is the club commitment agreement a higher version of the player's letter of intent? Well, the the, the way it played out would show yes. And also, <laughs> and also I, I think the ARL, despite thinking that that was going to be their plan, they actually probably took it about as seriously as a letter of intent. So... <laughs> After getting the clubs to sign those commitment agreements, they went out and registered a number of trademarks thinking about what News Limited's next move might be. So uh, National Rugby League, Australian National Rugby League, Australian Super League, Australian Premier League, World Series Rugby League, World Rugby League, and International Rugby League. So covered a number of the bases, but... But surely um, Super League had registered Super League. That's why they got Australian Super League. Yeah. You'd have to yeah. think. yeah. Um, Otherwise, that's one of the biggest oversights <laughs> in the history of business. And so from the News Limited side of things, they got to work uh, on the presentation that they would give to the clubs and the league in February 1995. That meeting forms the basis of our next chapter. So we'll leave it there for this episode. Uh, so we'd love to hear your thoughts as always. Uh, and next week, we'll be really getting right to the heart of it. It's on. It's on. We'll speak to you next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.